Hey everyone, so I thought I'd do something a little different this week. Uh, more staunch atheist listeners might be like, oh no, don't talk about that thing with the goat head again. <laughs> uh, my, my apologies. Uh, next week, we'll be back to normal with a, uh, a standard Weekend Out news story episode. And when I do that, um, I'll also give a, a bunch of much-deserved shout-outs. Literally uh, overnight, I think yesterday, I went uh, from about 202 to 211 Facebook likes. I don't know if my friend Seamus from the Free Thought Profit podcast gave me a shout-out or what, but I got a, a good deal, like a handful of likes uh, out of nowhere. Um, so that was great. Now I'll take care of those shout-outs next week. And hopefully this doesn't come off as obnoxious or something akin to humble bragging. Uh, I know I mentioned that Baphomet documentary a lot on the show. It's because I, I really am just kind of humbled and surprised by how well it's been doing. I know 68,000 views in comparison to the type of views that really big YouTubers pull in isn't a big deal. But for me, someone with a relatively small following, uh, 68,000 views is amazing. And I know sometimes my documentary episodes do fairly well, uh, but usually not this well. I think my St. Patrick documentary has gotten about 30,000, so, you know, less than half this. And um, I think my Krampus documentary might have, I don't know if it's in between 20 and 26,000. Did not expect these kind of numbers, and I'm also really moved and delighted by all the positive feedback I've received in the comments section. So I wanted to uh, basically dedicate a whole episode to just scrolling through the comments section of this video and responding. And look at this, believe me, the irony wasn't lost on me, and this actually happens a lot on YouTube where you find these kind of ironically placed uh, advertisements. So here's my Baphomet documentary, and the ad running on it is uh, from Pure Flix, this super Christy Christian uh, type of film, com film company who make these kind of... I don't know if they made God is... I almost said God is not great. That's the uh, Hitchens book. God's Not Dead and God's Not Dead 2. Uh, so they make what are to me... And uh, apologies if you're a believer who's listening and you're a Christian, you enjoy those movies, but these kind of schlocky B or C grade kind of Christian propaganda movies. So it's kind of funny to see a Pure Flix ad running on um, my video here. Me, myself, you know, I'm an atheist, agnostic atheist, uh, with, uh, you know, but someone who's nevertheless fascinated by spooky stuff, fascinated by the occult. And, uh, Here's a, a Pure Flix ad. What if you were visited by Jesus Christ? What if I was? <laughs> if he could prove he was who he said he was, who knows? Maybe I'd become a Christian. I don't know. Um, if he could actually prove that he was this, uh, this divine figure and that Christianity, despite all the, uh, the internal and external contradictions and the apparent man-made nature of the belief system, uh, if, if he could prove it was uh, the represented the ultimate religious truth, eh, may, who knows, maybe he'd make a convert of me. But since, you know, I've, I've gone this far through life without ever seeing or hearing an apparition, a spirit, or uh, beholding any type of miracles, I'm not holding my breath, so I doubt I'll ever uh, actually be visited by Jesus Christ Yeshua. And which Jesus would it be? Would it be like the white Aryan Jesus? Would it be like a more historically accurate Semitic Jesus? That's if Jesus was a his that's if Jesus was a historical figure. I'm kind of agnostic on the historicity of Jesus Christ. But anyway, why am I getting sidetracked by this stupid ad? But yeah, that is funny. Uh, I don't know if it's just an algorithm that does that. It must be. I mean, there's so many videos that need ads run on them. I'm sure it's not done manually. But uh, so it's like the algorithm has a sick sense of humor. I think usually if it's, uh, you know, I, I watch a lot of left-wing political channels and they'll often be like PragerU ads and Blaze TV ads running on them. And I watch a lot of atheist content and you'll see uh, religious ads running on them. 
782 comments. I, I'm not gonna go through all of them, but uh, let's dig in. Here we go. So here's someone named James Dolan, and he says, See this during meditation? It was kinda crying. Okay. And this is one I'm like, I don't wanna be too hard on the guy because he's not taking a shot at me, but it's just kind of a weird comment. Um, see this during medica during medication. Yeah, Freudian slip. See this during meditation. It was kind of crying. So I don't know if he means he saw the symbol of Baphomet during his meditation, like in his mind's eye, and appeared to be weeping. I don't, I don't even know what to say about that. I'm someone who's very fascinated by religious and spiritual occult symbolism, uh, by uh, spirituality in general. Uh, and at the end of the day, though, you know, I, I kind of err on the, uh, the scientific materialism side of things. I, I don't really believe in the supernatural. Uh, I don't think there's any good evidence to believe. And yet I love and, and, and I'm absolutely fascinated by all things supernatural and spiritual. Um, so, I mean, if this guy really did see some kind of vision while meditating, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I guess it depends on his worldview. Uh, does he literally believe in the supernatural and think it might be some kind of vision he's receiving from beyond? Or, uh, you know, you can also have a kind of figurative or kind of Jungian embrace of this stuff and uh, maybe think there's some psychological meaning, uh, something you can glean about yourself by interpreting the symbols you receive during meditation or whatever. I, I don't know. I don't know what the guy's worldview is, but that's certainly an interesting comment. Oh, this one. <laughs> Why does the narrator sound so pissed off? Um, and this has 56 likes and there's a bunch of replies and I replied to so one person said righteous indignation and two people, well, three people, including myself, like that comment. Conviction and self-assurance seems more accurate. If you are another uneducated Christian, you do not belong here. I, I appreciate the backup. Then Revelation 666. Oh dear, you call him an uneducated Christian. You are the uneducated one. We Christians should love and teach the good news of Jesus Christ. Why are you trying to deny he this video of importance? Oh, I see. I'm like, what? That's from the same person? No, that's a response to Revelation 666. You are the uneducated one. We Christians should love and teach the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, what if the other guy's not a Christian? Which uh, apparently he's not. He's probably, uh, um, he could be an atheist. He could be a uh, non-theistic Satanist. He could be a theistic Satanist. I don't know. But uh, not everyone's a Christian. And it's often becoming educated that leads people away from being religious or at least having a literal belief in the belief system they were indoctrinated into. When you learn about world religion, comparative religion, when you learn about the man-made nature of religion, that's the type of stuff that kind of erodes away at the, the indoctrination, you know? Oh, then someone's replying to Big Mom's Fat Toe. Big Mom's Fat Toe is the one that's telling people they're not educated. Please do not proselytize. Thank you. I'll like that one. I'll like that one. The narrator only sounds pissed off because they are still on... Because there are still so many that only believe what they've been told instead of knowing what they know to be true. But that, my dear ones, is changing every breath and every second. LOL. That's so it's because he's metal as fuck. I'll, I'll give that one a like. And I wrote, we haven't practiced in a long time, but I actually sing in a metal band. And I once wrote a song called Baphomet years ago. So I'll take I'll take that. I don't like the brag, but I'll I okay. I'm metal as fuck. I'll wear that mantle. And oddly, quite strangely indeed, my own response on my own video here is missing from this thread. I responded to someone. Maybe they deleted their comment, so my comment got deleted as well. Uh, but they were basically thanking me because something had happened that led them to an interest in Baphomet. And so they appreciated this audio documentary I had done. 
And uh, I kind of lightheartedly tried to explain that, you know, it's it's funny that people think this because I'm actually a pretty laid back guy who likes to kind of joke around and be silly despite my interests in these very kind of, you know, intense topics. And I think, I'm trying to think why I might come off as angry, you know, just trying to give a sincere answer. And I know that when I do these documentaries, I do try to affect a more serious tone. And if the documentary is dealing with kind of dark or serious subject matter, I'll kind of try to mirror that with my voice. And it's probably similar to the tone I use with my uh, H.P. Lovecraft readings when I read short horror stories and stuff like that. I get into this really kind of serious, focused headspace and I do, whether you know consciously or unconsciously, try to imbue the words I'm saying with some gravitas. And I do have a kind of naturally deep, somewhat gravelly, you know, kind of a New England voice. I don't know if that factors into it somehow. And my regular listeners are probably sick of hearing me complaining, but sometimes I have to take inhaled steroids. And uh, th- those tend to uh, affect the quality of my voice and make my voice even more raspy or gravelly. So there's that too. Um, the next one, Art Deco, Art Deco Jeweler says, I don't know if that's supposed to be an anti-Semitic play on words or whatever, says NASA means to deceive in Hebrew. <laughs> I have no idea. I know I have some Jewish listeners. If uh, that could be complete bullshit, if there is any truth to that, I'm sure it's uh coincidence and not reflective of some Zionist plot like this paranoid conspiracy theorist kind of dude seems to be implying. And I just thought of a horrible, horrible joke. I remember when I was young, and was it the Challenger? There was that space shuttle tragedy, that disaster that just kind of really rocked the country. And I remember there was some sick jokes that came out in the wake of that. There's always kind of sick jokes that come about and some people try to uh, explain it away psychologically as, you know, it's, it's just one means of trying to cope or whatever. But whether it's people just being callous or whether it really is a coping mechanism, whatever it is, there was this joke going around that NASA stood for need another seven astronauts. Don't shoot the messenger. So the next one says, you can tell most of these comments are from people who have never studied the occult. Very uneducated opinions indeed, especially the Jesus ones. Yeah, so I mean, my guess is, I think there's a few different types of people that have been attracted to this video. I don't know how many are like myself, you know, people who are non-believers but still interested or fascinated by this stuff. How many are actually people who literally believe in the occult. I welcome both kinds with open arms. Then I imagine another big part of the pie, another big demographic is probably Christians, specifically the right-wing conspiracy theorist slash uh, Mark Dice type, you know? And it's very normal with YouTube videos that only a very small percentage of viewers will actually take the time to like or dislike a video. Uh, that's, uh, that's always the case. The number of likes or dislikes, or, you know, the, the votes are always dwarfed in comparison to the number of overall views. You find that with both small YouTubers and YouTubers as big as PewDiePie or whatever. And so, yeah, so this, my video has 68,000 views, 983 upvotes, and I'm tremendously thankful for that. That is absolutely awesome. And uh, in comparison, only 96 downvotes. I mind, I imagine the downvotes are coming from Christians. A lot of them probably, like I said, kind of Mark Dice, conspiracy theorist types. And there was a very flattering comment I received on this video recently, and I can't see it here. The, uh, the comments might be displayed in order of popularity. So I'm looking on my iPad Oh, I see someone commented on my uh, St. Patrick video too, and um, I-, I never know if the if the comments are going to be positive or critical. For some reason, my spidey sense was telling me this might be a critical one. Then I click on it. One word. Cool. I'll take that. And there's this controversy over whether or not 
St. Patrick was technically Welsh or not. And I've gotten a lot of comments on that. I might actually do a follow-up episode just tackling that one specific uh, issue, whether or not St. Patrick was technically Welsh. I believe culturally, as I say in the documentary, he was technically Romano-British. So we're dealing with a really an early time when the Romans had invaded Britain and Roman culture had started to meld or fuse with the pre-existing, uh, I guess, Ang- I think technically the ancient pagan or pre-Christian inhabitants of Britain were, yeah, technically Celtic peoples. So you were dealing with the with this kind of pagan Celtic type of culture melding with Roman culture, Imperial Roman culture. And uh, that became known as Romano-British culture. So Patrick would have been Romano-British, but technically he may have been born. Am I saying technically a lot? Drinking game word of the week. In, in a part of what is now Wales. And back even during that time, they would have been speaking Welsh, I believe. Because I think off the top of my head, Welsh is roughly a 4,000-year-old language. Yeah, so the story of Patrick's background gets a little confusing or convoluted. But I'll dig in, research all that again, and uh, probably do a little response video at some point. Yeah, I just quickly looked it up. Celtic Britons. The Britons, also known as Celtic Britons or Ancient Britons, were Celtic people who inhabited Great Britain from the British Iron Age into the Middle Ages. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. I'm trying not to say too much because it's something I haven't read up on in a while. And I don't want to that. I think Brian Dunning of Skeptoid always makes that. It's a really great point that often uh, people like myself, you know, podcasters, content creators who like to talk about history, or science, whatever. We usually tend to slip up when we're casually talking about things that we think we know about. You know, I mean, things we've read about a lot in the past and we kind of take for granted our, our knowledge base regarding those things. And then so you're just speaking kind of casually and confidently off the cuff. And then you realize later to your horror that you unintentionally, you know, blurted out something that's incorrect, maybe due to the faulty nature of human memory or whatever. But uh, yeah, I believe technically a lot of historians think Patrick was born in a part of what would be modern-day Wales. So you have the Welsh kind of saying, oh, no, he's ours, man. He was, he, he was Welsh. But culturally, he was Romano-British. So you have the English and the Welsh trying to lay claim to Patrick in a sense. Then this next person says, and at first, when you, at first blush, it might look like it's kind of a silly or nonsense comment, but it's actually very, very insightful. It's a good comment. S. Vara says, Baphomet equals yin-yang equals balance, pretty much. And in the documentary, I go into how the quote-unquote modern, you know, occult symbol of Baphomet, the uh, the sabbatic goat, uh, this kind of cross-legged androgynous or hermaphroditic goat, uh, that was created by the occultist uh, Eliphas Levy. And I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I actually tried to research the French pronunciations. I'm sure I'm, I'm with my with my barbaric New England tongue. I'm, I'm sure I'm still butchering it to some degree. But Aliphas Levy or, or, or something like that. I've heard people say Levi too or whatever. And he was far from a Satanist. He was very interested in Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, uh, things like that. And the Baphomet figure was was meant to to represent a kind of union of opposites, a, a kind of balance. So uh, that person's dead on there. Okay, so I found that very kind of flattering, complimentary uh, comment I was talking about. Here it is on my iPad. This video is the most extensive and accurate reference video on the subject that I've run across, and I've seen many. Absolutely perfect. Thank you for the work that went into this. Nothing short of magnificent. It goes much deeper than balance for those who don't know. The symbol's important is, ba- 
importance is based on its ability to encompass the core principles of many schools of occult science. So thank you for that. Yeah, that's that's very uh that's very flattering. And if I was to give an honest assessment of my own document cuz a lot of people, a lot of listeners prefer my news story episodes or clip episodes where I just take religious news stories and stuff like that and riff on them from a secular or skeptical perspective. Um, But my personal favorite episodes are probably the documentary episodes. I like really researching a topic, kind of curating all the information, organizing it, and then refining everything into a kind of streamlined script. You know what I mean? Both because I'm passionate about the subjects I'm covering in the documentaries. And I just like, I like the kind of the discipline and the process. And I like the kind of clean, streamlined end result. Because uh, my unscripted episodes, like this is unscripted, can sometimes be well over an hour long. But I like how I can take all this useful information and, and condense it down into like a five or 15 or 20 minute documentary episode. I love doing that. And the longest documentary episode I ever did by, by a long shot is that Alistair Crowley documentary I released, what was that, a month or so back? Well over two hours long, completely scripted. Uh, but I, I personally wouldn't describe any of my videos as magnificent or my, my audio documentaries as magnificent. I know I'm very passionate about them and, you know, I work a full-time job and I'd much rather be doing this stuff full-time. So with the time I have, you know, I pour everything I have into these documentary episodes when I'm working on them. I take them very seriously And I feel a sense of duty and obligation to be as factually accurate and as well-researched as I can be. But at the end, you know, I'll I'll usually feel a sense of accomplishment and a, a kind of satisfaction. But I can still see where, oh, you know, the production quality could have been better. Uh, Maybe the reading, the narration could have been better. Uh, whatever, whatever it is, you know. Um, so I wouldn't say my documentaries are great or anything like that, but I am proud of them. Uh, kind of warts and all, even the rough area, even the rough areas where, like I said, I could maybe have done a better reading or, um, you know, the production value could have been better or something like that. But I'm, I am proud of myself after the fact, usually for, accomplishing the mission of trying to really research a subject I'm interested in and present, you know, a a short, concise, but still hopefully in-depth and most importantly, accurate documentary episode. But I do really appreciate that comment. That was quite flattering. But I think, yeah, if this was my full-time job, forget about, I mean, yeah, I would, I'd probably spend at least twice the time polishing up both, you know, my regular Week in Doubt episodes and these documentary episodes. And uh, it'd be, if I had the resources, you know, I'd try, I I was almost going to say History Channel uh, quality, but the very name History Channel has become something of a contradiction with the the rise in popularity of shows like Ancient Aliens, etc., I think people used to joke that the H stood for Hitler because remember they used to do so many World War II and uh, specifically Nazi and Hitler type of th- uh, stuff. Um, I did used to like the episodes on uh, Hitler and the occult, though. Any- anything to do with uh, the-, the occult fascinates me, really. Needless to say, I'm as uh, thoroughly and gutturally disgusted and appalled by the Holocaust as any decent human being should be. Um, and have absolutely no admiration for Hitler or his goofy officers. But yeah, it is kind of fun to watch those kind of, you know, those lurid documentaries on uh, the Nazis' interest in the occult and, 
you know, the Vril and Thule societies, uh, Blavatsky, uh, the obsession with uh, Aryan paganism. And I think there's speculation whether or not Hitler was genuinely into the occult and this kind of Nordic paganism or whether he cynically kind of exploited it. Um, I don't know. But some of his officers really were deeply into it. Especially Himmler, I believe. And didn't uh, Hess, Rudolf Hess, also have an interest in uh, the occult and astrology too, I think. Then this person, Scourge, says, I'm fairly new to studying the occult, but from what I understand so far is that a lot of it is an amalgamation of philosophy and psychology, understanding the human condition, the universe, and how to make yourself and the world a better place. And I actually think there's a lot of truth to what he's saying there. Oh yeah, I responded to it. I said, brilliantly said, the more I study things like hermeticism and chaos magic, the more I come to the same realization. It has more to do with the self than with the supernatural than with supernatural hocus pocus. Yeah, it's very interesting. I know like I was raised Roman Catholic, and we were raised to pretty much be wary or, or to stare clear from stare clear rather from anything that smacked of the occult, Ouija boards, tarot cards, uh, that type of thing. And I remember as a kid, I think I was kind of conditioned, you know, when I heard the word occult, I thought of human sacrifices. Uh, I thought of, um, you know, outright Satanism, uh, things like, you know, I, I had a, the word occult came with some really dark connotations. And I really think, get kind of a better sense of what the occult is really all about when you dig into the etymology of the word. Uh, it's, it's from, uh, I believe it's from the Latin for uh, to hide or conceal. And that's really what it's about. It's about hidden knowledge and not, ooh, Satanism or anything, but hidden knowledge that leads to wisdom, to self-knowledge, enlightenment, that type of stuff. And if you're one of my regular listeners, don't worry, I haven't hopped aboard the New Age train or anything. Still an atheist, agnostic atheist, whatever. Uh, I'm just trying to give a more accurate, objective description of what the occult, quote-unquote occult, is. And if you are someone who's interested in the quote-unquote occult, um, the best place to really start is by trying to find out as much as you can about hermeticism. Uh, that seems to be kind of at the root of Western occultism. And that's another documentary I'm going to do. I want to do a documentary on the supposed figure behind hermeticism. Uh, this, this figure called Hermes Trismegistus, uh, the thrice great or thrice greatest Hermes. And I'm probably going to really have to dig dig deep to try to get near the truth of that one. I believe, just from what I know already, probably something of a mythic or pseudo-historical figure. Um, if you know your ancient history, then you're probably aware of the, the Ptolemaic dynasty, how, you know, Alexander the Great conquered Egypt. One of his officers, Ptolemy, you know, created the Ptolemaic dynasty. Uh, that was the line which uh, Cleopatra belonged to. And generally, you had this kind of fusion between Hellenistic and Egyptian culture. And um, Hermes Trismegistus, I believe, embodies aspects of the Greek god Hermes, as well as the uh, Egyptian god Thoth. Thoth was kind of the... Um, he, he represented knowledge and learning, kind of the scribe of the gods in a sense. Um, and, and supposedly there's this pseudo-historical figure, Hermes Trismegistus, who, uh, who created the Hermetic Corpus. And Hermeticism is a huge part of uh, Western uh, occult belief, a, a big part of the foundation of all that. And of course, in the 19th century, in the Victorian era, spiritualism and the occult had really caught on. And there was a, a lot of occult um, 
society, secret societies that were blossoming, like uh, famously the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, which Crowley belonged to, and uh, other notable figures too, like W.B. Yeats. Yeah, so if you're interested in Western occultism, uh, definitely start by studying up on Hermeticism. I think one of the the main texts you can read if you're interested, if you, if you want to try to learn something about Hermeticism, is the Kybalion, K-Y-B-A-L-I-O-N, I believe. And there's a couple of YouTube channels I'm subscribed to that have a lot of great kind of like audio documentaries on the occult and stuff like that. I think one is called Intellectual Exercises. And I forget the name of the other one. But you can find so many free versions of the Kabbalion online. So, so many right on you, right here on YouTube, if you're watching the YouTube version of this. You can find plenty of um, versions of the Kabbalion on YouTube. Okay, and someone else says, Babes, keep away from occult. It's a deception. I know demonic entities exist. So if they do, it means God's real please. It means God's real please. Don't get sucked into it. I knew people in the OTO. It's very, very real. Check out Satanic Hollywood and near-death experiences. I pray you make the right option. Bless up. And so the OTO is the, uh, was it the Ordo Templi Orientis? I hope I didn't butcher that. And that's actually another uh, secret society that Crowley would end up joining and essentially pretty much taking over. Yeah, you know, there's some interesting claims in here. I know demonic entities exist. Oh, boy. I know whenever someone like me gives like a, you know, gives a skeptical response to something like this, you know, we sound like the bad guys. We sound like the Grinch for raining on people's parades or whatever. And, you know, we seem like we're, we're, being closed-minded and, and myopic and arrogant for not being receptive to other people's experiences. But I'm serious, man. It, it put some empirical evidence on the table for the existence of demons. <laughs> okay, you proved to me demons exist. Okay. From the point of view of someone who's fascinated by the occult and the supernatural demonology and stuff, uh, but doesn't believe demons literally exist. Yeah, I love demons, man. They're cool as shit. I just... <laughs> I just don't believe they literally exist. And the evidence for spirits, demons, it's always so painfully flimsy. And that brings that brings up something that I meant to talk about uh, around Easter time, but I not, never did. Hopefully I don't get in trouble for bringing this up. But everyone, you know, my family gathered together for Easter dinner. And, you know, like a lot of people, even if, you know... Well, I'm sure some of my family still believe. Like I said, I was raised Roman Catholic. My parents were fairly observant or devout. But even they, you know, their belief or their level of devotion seems to have waned over time, over the years. And uh, we don't say prayers at Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas dinner. But, you know, like for a lot of people, it's still just a time for family to get together. And there was a point during Easter dinner where some of my family members started talking about uh, how much they believe in ghosts, how, um, you know, how they watch all these ghost hunter shows. And uh, it was just unbelievable how much they bought into all of it. And I was almost going to say something, you know, but I didn't for a couple reasons. I just, I didn't want to start, you know, an argument. And also, I know that some of the people who were expressing their belief in, in spirits, etc., were people who had lost people that were very close to them, close family members and stuff. And maybe this is part of their coping mechanism. And I didn't want to try to rip the carpet out from under them while they're still battling with uh, some fairly recent losses, you know? So I just let them be, but I'm like, I got to mention this on the show, at least in passing. And it's funny because they mentioned one thing that I always mention When I'm making fun of those ghost hunter shows, I always talk about how the strongest quote-unquote evidence we ever see is like EVP phenomena, you know, just garbled audio Rorschach nonsense where they usually even prime you beforehand for what you're supposed to hear in that staticky gibberish um, or noise. 
and, uh, you know, they'll say, oh, a ghost scratched me in the dark or something. And they'll pull up their shirt and show you where they were scratched or something. And to me, that falls very short of conclusive or hard evidence. They could have scratched themselves in the dark. They could have, uh, as someone who works construction, I know how dangerous, you know, um, a job site can be. And here they are walking around in the dark in these old, like, condemned buildings and whatnot. So maybe they got scraped by wood lav or, you know, um, bits of jagged framing or concrete or even by their own camera equipment. Who the hell knows, you know? Saying that you got scratched by a demon and then turning the lights on or whatever and showing some scratches in your body is not empirical evidence for the existence of the supernatural. I'm sorry, you know? So when people say they believe in, in the entity, the existence of demonic entities, and like, if we're smart, we should believe too. It's like, sorry, I haven't seen the evidence. And I gotta tell you, one of the great fringe benefits of being a skeptic is like, I sleep like a baby at night. I don't worry about waking up and finding, you know, some twisted apparition at the foot of my bed or <clears throat> seeing shadow people moving across my walls. Um, I just don't care. I don't believe that that stuff exists. And I think I'm at the point in my life where I've just, I've been through so much personally and so jaded that like, I just can't be bothered. If I woke up and I did see some kind of apparition or shadowy supernatural presence, I'd just be like, ah, dude, I got bills to pay. I got to wake up in the morning, you know, have fun uh, creeping around the room or whatever. Feel free. Don't steal anything and let yourself out or stay and make breakfast. I don't give a shit. There's so many things to worry about in life. So many real things. Your own, you know, the frailty of the human body, the, the, the vagaries of existence, the human condition, you know, bills and responsibilities. I can't be bothered to be as, as fascinating and as cool to read up on and stuff as demons and the supernatural are. I just, I don't believe they literally exist. So no skin off my back. I don't worry about them influencing me. I don't worry about uh, waking up and finding them in my room at night or whatever. I just couldn't care less. And so I, I'm someone who's been drawing since an early age. And my favorite things to draw have always been like monsters. I like to draw dragons, demons, werewolves, stuff like that. All sorts of scary, fanged, clawed creatures. Um, but yeah, I don't believe in that stuff literally. But I feel very kind of attached or connected to the to the imagery and fascinated by it. I think psychologically, there's probably a lot you can read into it, but you know, my, uh, my love or fascination with that stuff, but I don't believe not to beat a dead horse that any of that stuff actually exists. The next person says, yeah, the occult is a trick. It is positivity created out of double negatives. It just puts you through a lot of shit just to realize in the end that the answer you were looking for was Jesus. And you will be like, man, I always knew it was Jesus in the first place. And so th there could be a weird kind of truth to that, uh, like figuratively speaking. It depends what you mean by Jesus. If you mean that people who dabble with the occult and get scared straight and become born again Christians or something. Yeah, whatever. Uh, if you're talking about how, you know, like I was saying before, the occult is basically about self-knowledge and enlightenment in a sense. And if you mean that Jesus, at least figuratively, symbolically, was a kind of, you know, an archetype of the enlightened God-man, then you might find through studying the occult, by studying Kabbalah, Hermeticism, etc., etc., that at the end of the day, the goal is to kind of become something like that, like an enlightened God-man, figuratively speaking, someone who's attained enlightened self-knowledge. But I don't know if that's what they mean. I don't know if this is a person who's, you know, who maybe meddled with the occult when they were younger and is now a Christian. I don't know. Oh, here they say again, uh, you said you were new to the occult and I warned you of its dangers. You must not have, you must not have understood all the Jesus stuff. If the occult doesn't kill you, 
you'll see what I'm talking about. And that's funny because I, I often speak on the show how a friend of mine got me interested. Actually, a couple of people, my friend Crocoduck and my friend Liz, got me interested in the last podcast on the left. And those guys, at least uh, Henry Zabrowski and uh, one of the other guys there, often talk about the occult and they talk about the dangers of the occult and of the dangers of magic. And these are from people who are enthusiasts of it, you know? Um, but to me, someone who doesn't believe in the supernatural or anything like that, I don't think there's any danger in reading up and studying things like Hermeticism, Gnosticism, Rosicrucianism, uh, Kabbalah, and trying to see if there's some like symbolic wisdom you can glean from it and incorporate in, into your life. But I think the guys on the last podcast of the left aren't as skeptical as I am, and they more tend to kind of blur the line between the fit, the figurative and the literal, and they tend to more literally believe in spooky stuff than I do. And they talk about how, to them, you messing with the occult can, uh, can drive you nuts if you're not careful or whatever. And once again, that's coming from people who are enthusiasts and who practice it. I think, yeah, um, if you're someone who literally believes in this stuff, someone who literally believes in the supernatural and who literally believes that you can end up inviting outside forces into your life, um, then yeah, getting too wrapped up in that stuff could eventually kind of threaten your grip on reality. You know what I mean? And I think even, you know, I'll be fair to Christians for a minute. If, um, if you're a believing Christian, from that worldview, I totally understand why you're threatened or wary of the occult. Because if you really believe in a supernatural or spiritual dimension, if you really believe that the occult, anything that isn't Christian, comes from the enemy of God, then according to your worldview, it makes perfectly good sense that you'd want to stay away from that stuff, of course. But to me, as a skeptic, as someone who's not a practicing Christian, who's fascinated by spirituality, the occult, the paranormal, but doesn't, once again, not to sound like uh, I'm beating a dead horse or a, um, a broken record, but who doesn't necessarily take any of this stuff literally, you know, this stuff is my playground. You know, I just, I love to explore and study and investigate this stuff. And for me, the biggest danger is probably just it, it panning out to be a waste of time. Best case scenario, which is often the case, I end up gleaning something I can use or incorporate into my own life, some kind of bit of wisdom, a new way to kind of look at things. And it's just like when I was in my, um, I, when I was younger, I used to kidding, jokingly call Buddhism training wheels for, you know, atheism. When I was in my teens, one of the things that helped me get over the kind of loss of God I experienced when my faith was kind of eroded by my reason was I began exploring Eastern religion and spirituality. And I don't literally believe in Buddha lands or um, karma or reincarnation, but a lot of stuff I learned from studying Buddhism has stayed with me over the years and has become a part of my core self. Detachment and equanimity, uh, yet at the same time having a deep sense of compassion and respect for other living beings, that type of thing. I I'm thankful that I studied East Eastern religion back in the day, and I learned a lot that I've incorporated into my, my own worldview that still helps me to this day. And I think so it's similar with the occult, uh, studying up on hermeticism, Gnosticism, things like that. And someone says, Rachel Fitzmorris. So they're replying to someone else in the chat. You sound, or in the comment section, you sound hella scared. L-M-A-O. You should look up Elohim. Your first name ends in L. And so that's very interesting. I've long been fascinated by El Elohim. And so these are two different Hebrew names. Or, yeah, I guess we'll say Hebrew for the moment. For God. El, I think, originally comes from the Canaanite. Uh, El was a Canaanite term. I think both El and Baal, or Baal, were 
Canaanite terms for supreme deities, which translate to something like great king or lord or something like that. Yes, I'm just double checking myself here. Yes, so Baal translates to owner or lord. I've also heard great king in Northwest Semitic languages. Uh, El is a a Semitic uh, word for deity. I think, yeah, these were words used by the Canaanites. The really interesting thing is, and I remember getting into a, I had like a brief discussion. It was too civil to even call an argument with uh, a Christian listener who used to uh, listen to the show and comment on the Facebook page regularly. And we were really friendly. Uh, I believe he was actually a pastor or something like that. And a lot of scholars have noticed the kind of eyebrow-raising fact that Elohim is actually plural. The way, uh, you know, a seraph is a kind of angel. Seraphim is plural. A cherub is a kind of angel. Cherubim is plural. Then you have El. Then you have Elohim. We're talking plural gods. And in some parts of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, God is referred to as Elohim. So some people have said, hmm, man, this is kind of uh, flirting with um, polytheism here. Uh, It seems like God is being referred to as uh, multiple gods, you know? Um, And Christian apologists will say, well, this could be taken just as an example of what we would call the royal we, where you don't actually mean um, one individual's many individuals, just like the way a medieval king might refer to himself as we, you know, but still fascinating. That is one here by someone called Spirit Warrior. And I'm not, it's like a huge, it's kind of a text wall and I'm not sure what they're getting at. So, and someone left a message in Latin. I can see Coagula in there. So there's a reference to uh, Baphomet. To, uh, to separate and join. Uh, and someone, <clears throat> they didn't even say anything. They just left a thumbs up to that. But I, I like their name, their user, their handle or whatever is Theater de Vampires. <laughs> is that from the, uh, from the Anne Rice books? I read most of her vampire books back in the day. Um, then I remember finding out she became Christian. Then I think she started getting turned off by... Um, kind of right-wing Christianity or talking heads or whatever it was. Uh, someone says, thank you for putting this in perspective. And that's that's a very short comment, but I think in a way it's actually what I, what I was trying to do. I think that's what I try to do with all my documentary episodes. I try to take a topic that I just find really interesting, um, something that maybe, you know, I've been fascinated by for years and I just felt like a desire to make a doc- finally make a documentary on the thing in question so that myself and others could have a clearer, more comprehensive understanding of the thing. You know what I mean? Um, and I try to be as objective as possible and to try to go as in-depth as I can within you know, a fairly short amount of time. And try to present the information in a very clear, easy to digest way. And I do and I, I do my best to just be, I might have a passion or a fascination for the thing I'm talking about, but I do my best to remain objective and factual and just kind of lay the facts out on the table and say, here's what we know about this particular topic. Someone says, I'm just here wondering why I woke up and said his name the other day. LOL. (laughs) Um, Someone says, Vern Butler, 12, please. How about again half? Where are we going from here? I have no idea what that means. I don't know if that's as garbled as it seems to me or if I'm missing something. Someone says, Thanks for putting all of the available research together. Informative, concise, well-presented. Thanks again. And that kind of echoes what I was just saying. That's actually my goal with every documentary. They pretty much just said it more eloquently and concisely there than I did in the past five rambling minutes or whatever. 
putting the available research together in an informative, concise, well-presented way is pretty, that's pretty much my goal with every documentary episode. Someone else says, goats eat trash. All it represents is the play of yin and yang, the seen and unseen forces that always interact. No big deal unless you become unbalanced and ignore one side or the other. Really, it represents freedom of choice. <laughs> I thought that was going to be like a, a Christian comment at first because they start out kind of dissing goats. Goats eat trash. You know, why would you use a goat as a symbol or whatever? But it seems like they have a pretty grounded understanding of, uh, of the Baphomet symbol. But yeah, and, and that's funny because I can remember even as a kid, before I really knew what it was, you know, still a believer, a young Catholic kid, seeing uh, images of the Sabbatic goat, seeing the sigil of Baphomet, like the um, LaVey's Church of Satan uses. And it just seemed like a really sinister and ominous image, this goat head with a furrowed brow, you know? I think um, Eliphas Levy explains why he used the goat's head, why he gave this androgynous or hermaphroditic figure a goat head. I think the goat head is supposed to represent the kind of brutish or animalistic aspect of human of human nature and also in kind of you know spiritual terms the the kind of bestial nature of sin um and probably like you know like the base material aspect of of human of human existence and uh i'm just trying to see like I don't want to start talking out of my posterior here. So let me look at, I'm actually looking at my own notes for that documentary. And there's actually a quote. The beast's head expresses the horror of the sinner whose materially acting, solely responsible part has to bear the punishment exclusively. Because the soul is insensitive according to its nature and can only suffer when it materializes. So I guess, relatively speaking, I was right. There's someone, <clears throat> someone who goes by the name of Random Ass Weeb. Why is this in my recommended? <laughs> and there was another comment like that, too. And it looked like a kind of young goth guy with all sorts of, like, facial piercings. and so Nothing wrong with that. I actually like that aesthetic. But it's like, uh, I, I think I said just being a wise ass, I said it, it's because you were, you've been meddling with dark forces. But I'm like, dude, I'm just looking at you. And it looks like you've been looking at stuff that probably led you to uh, a Baphomet recommendation. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. We're probably both looking at the same type of crap. Someone else says, is that mean, is that means devil are devil, falling angel are falling angel. Okay. This vid was very interesting. Thank you for taking the time to make it. It was very informative. Thanks, man. Oh, here's another recent comment that I found really interesting. I cannot understand why they depict the goat with the devil or the snake. Goats and snakes are creation of God, too. I'll give that a like. And you know what I like about that, what kind of resonated with me, is I can remember being a kid, you know, still being a believer, maybe even in the process of losing my faith at that point, I don't know. But you know how kids always... It's quite common, and, and I imagine uh, I'm not a parent, but it must be very frustrating to parents when kids start getting too smart for their own good, and they start kind of testing what they've been taught, and uh, they have all these little intellectual revelations and questions and whatnot that uh, develop. And I remember thinking to myself as a kid, you know, why is the snake the bad guy? Um, didn't God make all animals? So he may, must have made snakes too. Is it th just this one snake that's bad? Or are all snakes evil? And if all snakes are evil, does that mean the devil made them, even though God supposedly made all creatures? Um, <laughs> I used to wonder, like, why... Um, like, my sister owns pygmy goats. She has a bunch of different animals. I've actually been working on her house recently, so I've been up by her little ranch or animal barn she's got like miniature horses pygmy goats stuff like that and goats are awesome creatures i mean you do have to be careful i think one of my sister's pygmy goats did actually um whip its head around when one of her friends was trying to hold it and her friend ended up having to get stitches from uh the on her face from the, one of the goat's horns 
But if you respect their space and you just let them be goats, are actually really nice, kind of like entertaining animals. Nice, friendly, kind of naturally curious, just fun animals to be around. I remember as a kid too, you know, thinking like, hmm, why are goats evil, but sheep are all right? Or even like, why, if God made pigs, how come it's wrong to eat them, but it's all right to eat other animals, you know, stuff like that. And so I think that's actually a really logical question. You know, if these animals are part of God's creation too, why are they so quote unquote demonized, no pun intended, you know? And of course there's kind of, well, depending on your point of view, either really boring or really interesting explanations for why that is, kind of explanations that reveal the man-made nature of religion. And of course, in the case of the snake in the garden, there's, um, you know, it's widely thought that the flood narrative contained in the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, the Atrahasis, you know, uh, basically the Mesopotamian flood story, that that's a precursor of the Noachian flood story, the flood narrative within the Hebrew Bible, within Genesis, um, and that it may have been lifted directly from the Mesopotamian version. Well, obviously, there's significant changes to it, but, you know, it was directly influenced by its early Mesopotamian predecessor. And in the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's the part of the story about the snake stealing the kind of, you know, the plant, the flower of life. And, um, and in the Judeo-Christian Garden of Eden story, we see that a, a snake also plays the antagonist. And maybe this is lifted from the Mesopotamian predecessor. I don't know. It could also be a reflection of man's kind of fear of reptiles, snakes, etc. Um, and you have some people who try to say that, at least symbolically speaking, you know, the the snake's not actually the bad guy. The snake is actually the bringer of wisdom and knowledge. He's the one who kind of coaxes man from this kind of naive, childlike state into a state of knowing, real knowing. Um, but of course, at least according to the, to the narrative, things really hit the skids for Adam and Eve after they do eat of the fruit of the, uh, you know, the tree of knowledge, which I think some people speculate that since apples didn't exist, you know, at that time, you know, in the ancient Middle East, that, uh, Let's just for the sake of argument, if the story was real, it probably would, or at least in the mind of the writer or writers, it the, the storyteller, it probably would have been a fig or a pomegranate or something like that. But uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think that's just a modern kind of psychological spin on it that the snake is actually the the bringer of of uh, wisdom and knowledge, uh, self knowledge, etc. If you actually read the the Adam and Eve story. You know, things kind of turn out very badly for them. It doesn't make you wish you were there eating the fruit, too. God kind of lays it on heavy with the punishment, uh, basically strips them of their immortality. Well, depending on how you interpret the story, I think there's some scholarly contention over whether or not it's implied that Adam and Eve were essentially deathless prior to eating of the fruit of the, uh, the, of the tree of knowledge. But it definitely seems like they were taken down a peg or two, to say the least. They become aware of their own nakedness. They're burdened with shame and guilt, made susceptible to all the vagaries of existence, etc. And on face value, it might seem like a simple, probably deceptively so, little story. But you can get lost, you know, trying to figure out exactly what the Adam and Eve story is all about. And as I've posited before, you know, I think it could simply be just a way, a story, like many myths, to try to explain natural phenomena. Uh, in this case, the phenomenon of man's suffering and mortality, you know, the, the human condition. As far as goats and sheep, you know, if, if you go into uh, ancient Jewish tradition, there's obviously the, um, the tradition of the scapegoat, of the community kind of symbolically putting the, the sins of the community onto the back of a goat and making this kind of, uh, I guess you could say, this kind of arbitrary distinction between sheep and goats, their symbolic value or whatever. Oh, I love this one. I remember first seeing this too. It's from Frank's Liberty. 
I have Tel Aviv vacation ads below the description of the video. No agenda here. Rule eyes. Yeah, this is all, I'm a shill for some big Zionist plot or whatever. Uh, I, I directly um, requested Tel Aviv ads to play on my video. Get the fuck out of here. This guy is probably coming straight from Mark Dice's channel. And other than the fact that occult practitioners, it's common for them to have an interest in the Kabbalah. And often the Kabbalah is, you know, uh, gets wrapped up with hermeticism, etc., and kind of creates, you know, um, modern um, Western occultism. Um, yeah, so besides occultist kind of interest in Kabbalah, what the heck does Tel Aviv even remotely have, to, or Judaism have to do with Baphomet, you know? Eliphaz Levy, and that wasn't his, his birth name. Uh, I, I believe he wasn't even Jewish by birth, but he was fascinated by uh, the Hebrew alphabet, by Kabbalah, by things like that. So that was his taken name. And it was basically roughly his attempt to translate his given name into Hebrew. So other than the fact, like I was saying, and hopefully I don't sound too repetitive, I'm sure I do, that occultists often have an interest in the Kabbalah and, and Jewish mysticism. I mean, yeah, what does Tel Aviv or Judaism have to do with Baphomet? I mean, if you go up to, I'm, I'm sure the your, your average Jew, your average devout Jew or whatever, uh, probably have no idea what the hell Baphomet even is. They probably have no idea who Eliphaz Levy is. Um, it's not their fault that there's a lot of occultists who are interested in Jewish mysticism. People who happen to be Jewish, most of them probably have no idea about any of this crap. I can't stand these paranoid, uh, these deluded, paranoid, right-wing religious types. And this person, <coughs> Yasserine, says, and the king has six, making him the Adam. Five has six, smart guy. Okay, there's a lot of weird comments. And by comments, weird comments, I don't mean weird in the sense that people like myself who are interested in the occult or, or you know, ancient history or whatever it is, or religion, spirituality, and have something coherent and cogent to say. I'm talking about these people seem like, and this is coming from someone who's known or knows people who are mentally ill and who has a lot of compassion for people who are mentally ill. But some of these people you know, sound almost like they should be on medications. And I'm not saying that as some kind of joke. I mean, these really kind of garbled, seemingly nonsensical, disjointed comments. Weird stuff, weird stuff. Someone says, you need more views, man. This is great. Thank you. I'll give that a thumbs up. You know, when I try to maintain some kind of sense of humor, um, you know, an ability to laugh at myself. Someone here says, this narrator is hard to listen to. And I responded, and this was a month ago, tell me about it. I have to listen to him every time I speak. It's true. And the funny thing is, I'm like my own worst critic when it comes to my voice or whatever. Like my two favorite things to do are podcasting and singing, both things you need your voice for. And I am really hard on myself about my voice. And to the point where I obsessively worry about what medications I'm taking are going to, you know, what kind of effect they'll have on my voice. Are they going to make my voice dried out, more raspy, that type of thing? Um, but what can I do? You know, I'm interested in this stuff. I love expressing myself through podcasting. My voice is my voice. I got a soldier on, you know, what you want, man. But it seems like the majority of people don't have a problem with my voice, so I'm not going to let the rare person like this ruined my day. I actually try to see the self-deprecating humor in it, you know? Someone here says, anyone from DB Super? And I wonder if they mean Dragon Ball Super? Because Dragon Ball Z is actually one of my guilty pleasures. Uh, I usually don't talk about that very often on the show, but... <laughs> uh, is there... I think, is Dragon Ball Super the one where they have the huge tournament in another dimension or something? Is there something to do with Baphomet in that? I don't remember. Someone named Rahman Jamal says, I'm in love. And I don't know if they're in love with me or Baphomet. Uh, he says, again, I worship myself. 
with me. Okay, he adds in a third comment. He clarifies. Oh, this is the one I respond responded to. Because I think this person says something about me sounding pissed too. And they say, yeah, man, you seem pissed. Thanks for replying to me. Yeah, because I said, haha, it seems so weird to me that people think that. I'm a really laid back guy who likes to joke around. Maybe I'm just reading the script I wrote in too serious of a tone. George Soros. Oh, this is high praise. He's I'm not that stupid. I know it's not the real George Soros. That was a very good video. Thank you. Someone says, should have hired Bill Curtis as a commentator. Uh, I, so I don't know if they're panning me for my voice or if they're just a Bill Curtis fan. Because uh, that reminds me, I remember when I was young and I used to watch all sorts of documentaries on like the History Channel and A&E and stuff. Bill Curtis was like omnipresent, man. He was like all over the place. There was a time when it almost seemed like he narrated everything. Someone says, beautiful rendition. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny with my voice because I don't like there's some people complaining about my voice here. And then um, on my St. Patrick video, there were people saying my voice was sexy, which I found flattering and yet made me feel somewhat awkward at the same time. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, it's funny. I don't know if maybe I have like a unique voice, but throughout my life, I remember throughout my school days, you know, I'd have teachers and other students compliment my voice and they used to like it when it was my turn to read aloud in class and things like that. Then other people tell me I have a dopey voice. You know, I sound like I'm high all the time. Um, and even when I think I'm hiding my New England accent, I guess you can only hide it so much. And a, a lot of people just think the New England accent is absolutely ridiculous. Well, actually, there's a number of different New England accents. <clears throat> then, like I said, sometimes my voice gets a little raspy, and I don't know if that helps or hurts. But uh, I guess you either like my voice or you don't. Um, I'm going to keep podcasting either way, so what can I do, you know? But with that being said, I guess I'll call this a wrap. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone, or watching. Uh, and uh, until next time.